You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. Being a parent is, is an overwhelming responsibility, isn't it? Those of us who have had the joy and privilege uh, of being parents. But, but it's not just their physical needs. I mean, that's, that's overwhelming enough. It's like, oh, we need more formula, diapers, or you know, homework and school, and all these things that all the way through you know, to the time they head off to college. And even then, it's still a responsibility. I've, just, I've had conversations really with a number of people. I've never found the off button for the parent switch. You know, it doesn't, it's always on, and it's an overwhelming responsibility. But again, beyond just the physical things, beyond just the things about them being healthy, and the, there's this idea that we need to train them and develop them and grow them and hopefully be into us, you know, contributors to society um, in a way that's productive. And, but, but that includes more than just feeding them meals and giving them clothes. It includes telling them, you know, we do these things, we don't do those. It, it affects morals and values, um, behavior. All these things are shaped by parents as the child grows older. These are things that are learned. They're not, that's not intuitive. A kid just doesn't know this on their own. They have to be taught this is what we do, this is what we don't do. And we want to reinforce the positive things, and we want to try to eliminate the negative things, don't we? <clears throat> um, so for me, one thing uh, that I never tolerated, or we never tolerated in our house, um, from the time the earliest, from the first kid even to today, is anyone being disrespectful to Betsy. If you wanted to see me get unglued with my kids, just, just let them do something that was disrespectful to her. And that, we dealt with that very quickly. I mean, especially when they were real young, I'd get down. And, I mean, if, if they were younger, I would get down on a knee. I would get down at eye level, so I'm looking them straight in the eye. And I said, you just need to understand something. You're a Dabratka. And the Dabratka family, we don't do that. This is not how we do things. This is not how we talk to our mom. Then our family, there are certain things that we do and there are certain things that we don't do. We're honest with people. We always expect you to do your best and you will never, ever show disrespect to your mom. Ever have that conversation with your kids? Ever parent ever have that conversation with you growing up? Now, the similar thing is happening in the book of James. Now, we're, again, we're starting a, a, actually a 10-week series, one of our longest series we've ever done on a, on a book in the Bible. Ironically, James is one of the shortest books in the whole Bible. It's only five chapters long, 108 verses, start to finish. And so but we're going to spend a good bit of time working through it. It's a very small one at the very end of the New Testament. Um, so start at the back of the Bible and kind of work that way if you're trying to thumb through it and find it. Um, people still have paper Bibles these days, don't they? Um, here's the thing about James. It really is an interesting book. Um, it's considered to be the first book ever written in the New Testament. So of all the New Testament books, James is considered to be the first one. It was written only 10, maybe 20 years, 10 to 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. So within very short order, and I mean, compared to what the other books have written, is when we see the book of James written. No other New Testament book emphasizes the need for justice like the book of James. 
I mean, he's all over it. There's, there, because at the time, there's, un, there's very much, there's, um, um, that's what I'm looking for here, unjust behavior by the rich and the powerful. A lot, of, a lot of things that they were doing that were unjust. And there was also some just a very uh, politically upheaval, uh, political upheaval at the time. Um, and so he's encouraging people to, you know, uh, solve your differences, you know, peacefully. And he's really wanting people to live at peace with one another. Respect one another. Don't show favoritism. Um, and, in, and it's interesting because in some ways, James almost seems to be contradicting the writings of Paul. I mean, Paul constantly talked about you're saved by grace through faith. Saved by grace through faith. And, and he's constantly talking about grace, constantly talking about that faith. James, on the other hand, tends to talk about behavior. It's the things you do. And almost seems to be in contrast or in contradiction if you just put them at their face value. It's important, though, then to understand as we kind of jump into this, that we understand a little context for why James wrote the way he did. What was the environment in which he was writing? And there's two things that are at play here that affect why he wrote what he did. One is what we now refer to as, there was a prevalence in that day, was this form of what we now consider is the term antinomianism, which is a long word, which basically says this. Again, Paul talked about we have freedom in Christ. We're no longer under the law of Moses. We're no longer held by that law. We have freedom in Christ. Those in this persuasion took that to an extreme. If I'm free in Christ, I'm free from everything from all time. So I have, a, I have a free pass to do anything I want. So I'm, I'm saved. I love Jesus. And now I can do anything I want. And James is saying, no, you can't. That's not, you missed the point altogether. Paul said that we're justified by grace. James said your life should exemplify that justification. There should be some fruit to what, what's out of that. The other thing to recognize what was going on here is that there was significant political unrest and instability. Again, so we do know that this was written probably around the, the year A.D. 50. We know that there was a civil war rebellion against Rome and started around A.D. 60 with Rome coming in and leveling the temple and everything else in A.D. 62. So there was a lot of things that worked even at this point that were rumbling and not of different groups. And so James was writing against the very people who held power, which, again, if you, I realize I'm, I'm getting in the weeds for some of you, but within the religious, the Jewish religion, we had the Pharisee group and we had the Sadducee groups. They differed over some of how they understood Scripture. The Sadducees were the ones who held most of the political power. And so they're the ones, the political power from Rome. Rome was the one that gave them, and I, again, I don't know how or why it ended up the way, but they had it. But they were wealthy, and they had, they manipulated, their, they misused their power, and there was great injustice. James was a threat to the Sadducees. But at the same time, you had the Pharisees, and we don't know, Jesus was always confronting the Pharisees. We know what that was about. We know what they stood for. But in this context, they were also opposing the Sadducees. And so you had this political rift going on within Judaism. James was trying to navigate that narrow path between them. He said, listen, we're going to have conflict. You need to resolve our conflicts peacefully. We need to love one another. And so we do know that James, unfortunately, got caught 
in the middle of this and wasn't, was only able to navigate it so long. And we know that he was largely, he was martyred in AD 62 largely because of this political rift. What's interesting, we know it's not because it's in the Bible. Josephus, a Jewish historian, wrote about this and James being killed in AD 62 and the other thing. So it's an interesting thing. But make no mistake about this. James is very pointed in his writing. Even though he's trying to navigate this narrow path between, he's very pointed. So of the 108 verses in the book of James, 60 of them talk about obligations. 60 of them says, here's what you need to do. Again, like one of these parents, um, James, you know, it's just over and over again. It said, you, you need to walk, the, you're, you, you don't need to just talk the talk, you need to walk the walk. And in many ways, James feels like kind of what we were doing in my family, you know, with the kids. But instead of saying, hey, you're a Dabratka, this is how you need to behave. He was saying, is that you're a follower of Jesus. And as a follower of Jesus, in his family, there are certain things that we do. This is how we live our life. And the reason for this is that, you see, we have a problem, don't we? That even though we might love Jesus, every day we struggle with the desires that are part of human nature. We do. And they're reinforced by an ungodly culture. So we have this natural struggle. And the challenge then for us is for us to stay true to who God has called us to be, as opposed to trying to fit God into a box that we've created. How do we navigate that path that in his way that's pleasing to him. James believed that good actions will naturally flow from those who are filled with the Spirit. In fact, James goes so far as you could actually say that he says that if good behaviors aren't flowing out of a person, then we could actually question the viability of their faith. Is it just faith in word only, or is there actually substance behind it? So with this as background, let's uh, jump in. Uh, for with uh, James 1. Now, normally I'll read a passage, <clears throat> and then I'll spend the rest of the sermon kind of unwrapping that or talking about it. Because of the way this is laid out, I'm actually going to, un- I'm going to kind of elaborate. I'll read a section, I'm elaborate, read a section, elaborate, and kind of work it through that way, and then I'll sum it all up at the end. Um, so let's, uh, I would like to pray, though, before I even begin that. Father, I do thank you for the time we've had to be together. We continue to pray and cry out to you, Lord God, uh, for Scott and for Julia and for Len and Sue and Liz and others who, who are under the weather this day. Father, heal them, we pray. Father, for the next few minutes that uh, as I'm talking and sharing, Lord, I just pray for wisdom and discernment as, uh, Lord, I try to unwrap what we see here in the first chapter of James. And, uh, God, I just pray that my words would be your words. And, Father, people would hear what they need to hear and that your spirit would work and be at work in all of us here in the next bit of time. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, um, James 1, verse 1 through um, 18 is what we're going to look at today. Um, So let's just start James 1. We're going to start with the first two verses. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. So the first question we need is, who's James? Possible. There are six different individuals in the New Testament who who we know by the name of James. Six different individuals. Two of the twelve, twelve apostles, are named James. But you're right. We think, and there's evidence as we go through it, and I'm not going to necessarily unwrap all of that, but the James that's referred to here, the writer of this book, is actually the physical, biological, younger brother of Jesus. 
What's interesting about this um, <clears throat> for me is that we read in the Gospels, particularly in Mark 3 and John 7, that Jesus' family didn't know who he was until much later in his ministry, even possibly until the resurrection. It showed that there's a couple instances where the brothers showed up, his family showed up, and they actually, and particularly in John 7, where they're making comments that suggest, yeah, you know, dude, you kind of get over yourself. Let's get back home where you're supposed to be. And, and it's that kind of a dynamic. They don't really realize what's going on here. Um, but over time, they probably become aware. They clearly realize, right, something about our older brother is different when, you know, he resurrected from the dead. That would certainly get their attention at that point in time. But here's what's interesting. Following the resurrection, uh, James becomes the central figure for the church in Jerusalem. Do you ever notice that? Because it starts off being Peter, isn't it? We all know that Peter, Jesus says, upon this rock, I'll be in my church. And Peter is the central focal point. Do you realize in Acts chapter, Acts goes up 28 chapters. We don't hear about Peter after, after chapter 15. Peter disappears. What we, all, what we, we learn is that Peter actually leaves Jerusalem. We know he spends time in Antioch, and we think he spent time in Corinth as well. Peter embarked uh, on his own missionary journeys, visiting some of the churches that Paul had already gone to and spent some time there. So there's this leadership vacuum, if you will, in Jerusalem, and James fills that vacuum. So James, the brother of Jesus, is now the central figure in the New Testament church here in the first century, or in the, the um, Roman church, I'm sorry, Jerusalem church in the, in the first century. Even Paul acknowledges this. A lot of his letters, and Galatians particularly, acknowledges the role James played when he went and met with them. In fact, when Paul went to the, drew back to Jerusalem to meet with the council, you know, about, hey, you know, what are the Gentiles, are going to accept the Gentiles or not? He mentions James by name, that the, James is the, one of the central uh, figures. James, along with Peter and John at the time, were the, the three uh, pillars that Paul refers to. So then we actually look at the verse. He says, to the 12 tribes <clears throat> scattered among the nations. 12 tribes refers to the 12 tribes of Israel. It's the Israelites. He's going back to an Old Testament reference. Um, and so essentially, so we're, we're, what he's saying, he's writing to the Jews. He's not writing to Gentiles. Paul wrote mostly to Gentiles, almost exclusively to Gentile groups. James is writing to a Jewish diaspora. These are Jews who are now living in the Mediterranean region, primarily up in what is present-day Turkey and others. And so he was writing his letter to them. These kind of things, he'd write a letter. What's also interesting, Paul's letters he'd write to the church in Corinth. He'd write the letter, <clears throat> put, you know, dot it, roll up the scroll. <clears throat> Excuse me, they hand it to somebody, they get on their donkey, and off they go um, and deliver it to the church in Corinth. <clears throat> We don't know how this letter was delivered. We don't know where it went. But we do know that the, it was common practice that in those days, a letter would be written. <clears throat> it would be sent off to a group. Or the group who would receive it often would copy it. So they would have a copy. <clears throat> then they'd send it off to another group. They would read it. And so you'd then have this way of, of it being shared within the region among the Virginia churches. So we do know that the group he was writing with isn't to a specific group but to the Jews at large who were spread across the Mediterranean region. <clears throat> Let's go on to the next uh, past section here. <clears throat> In verse 2, um, um, James continues on. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, wherever you face trials of many kinds. 
because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Um, Thursday was a pretty crummy day for me. It really was. um, Within a five-hour period, I actually looked at the clock, and within a five-hour window, um, you know, this is when everything happened with uh, Scott going out of a ventilator. That was all happening at that point in time. Um, I had three other um, families associated with our church um, that were going through a minor crisis. Um, and um, uh, we also learned that a person who was very close to both Betsy and I, um, incredibly instrumental um, in, in my life, but even particularly Betsy, he was her former, um, thank you, uh, former uh, youth pastor. He married us, incredibly informative, but he died unexpectedly on a Thursday afternoon. Um, devastated uh, both of us. And uh, all this was in a five-hour window. Honestly, it felt like the world was collapsing around me. I was like, holy smokes, what's going on? You ever have a day like that? Just like, ah. Oh. Honestly, I wasn't joyful Thursday afternoon. I was not happy. Do you feel joyful? I mean, that's, that's not, in those moments, it's not a natural emotion. You know, so when, when James says, consider a pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, that's not normal. <laughs> you know, it's just not. That's, that's just... So what is he saying? What is he saying? Because I, I, I don't think he, James is asking us to do something that's beyond capacity. So here's what I know. He's not saying, he's not saying fake it. He's not saying, oh, you know, put on a bright face and be happy and pretend you're happy even though you're not. You know, it's not a mind over matter thing. I think, I think this. I think in the moment, I think in the moment we're going to feel whatever we're feeling. Overwhelmed. We're going to feel sad, sorrow. We're going to feel angry, um, afraid, worried. I mean, whatever the emotion is we're feeling, it, we're going to feel it. However, <clears throat> I'm also convinced us in the midst of these moments, we find God. See, I believe this firmly. I believe God does some of his best work in the middle of life's darkest moments. It's only when we're in need that we learn that God is our provider. It's only when we experience a time of loss that we experience God as comforter. And it's only when we're sick when we can experience God as healer. Adversity brings with it an opportunity for you to experience God in ways you otherwise wouldn't experience Him. And that causes you to grow and to mature and we're stronger because of it. And that, and that is something about which you can have pure joy. Not in the moment. You have to actually separate yourself and be able to take a little bigger perspective and say, right, what is ultimately going on here? And I think that's what James is saying here. He's saying, friends, I know things are really rough right now, but here's what's going to happen. When a little bit of time goes by, your emotions subside, recognize that God is at work. And about that, you can be joyful because God hasn't abandoned you. God has not abandoned you. Then he goes on, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave 
on the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Then there's verse 7. Oh, yeah. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. This is tied, actually, to the previous passage about joy. So they're not two separate ideas. They're actually connected. We've got to remember, again, James is trying to help people navigate a very challenging life, a very difficult season of life, very difficult circumstances. Again, there's multiple groups vying for power, you know, influence. There's, you know, talk of rebellion. There's groups that are starting to be created. There's widespread misuse of power, corruption. There's huge distrust of leaders. There was also a very stratified society. Life was not equal for everyone. Sound familiar? This is different. Persecution for them was very real. Because as Christ followers for them, persecution was very real. <clears throat> here's what I've discovered. And here's, I think, that what James is asking. Here's the question. He says, when we're not sure which way is up, how are we to think about life? When all this is going on, when, when all these things, all these different voices, and, you know, you get one person saying, you need to be, you need to be informed, you need to be read this, you need to do this, you need to be informed, you need to be informed. The other side is saying, you're not being informed, you're being misled, you're being, who's right? And how, which do we need to believe, and what do we need to do? And that's what James is saying here. I think that's what he's asking, is how are we to think about that? Because he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, now, I think it's actually kind of interesting for me. This is where my mind immediately went. It says, if someone lacks wisdom, do they, are they aware that they lack wisdom? You know, is this a self-awareness thing? If you lack wisdom, do you, are you even aware of it? But even beyond that, Paul lists, or to say they do. James says this, um, that if we ask God for wisdom, he will give it to us. Honestly, I probably pray, pray that prayer a dozen times a day. God, give me wisdom. What do we do? What do we do? God, give me wisdom. God, and James says that if we ask God for wisdom, he will give it to us. But there's a stipulation. There's one of those but uh, in there. He says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Now, to doubt is what he's talking about here is not that you have questions. To doubt, as he's talking about here, is to question the very character of God. And that's never a good thing to do. <clears throat> in the first eight verses we've just read, James is, is acknowledging the fact that life is challenging and you're going to have adversity. But he says, don't grow worry, don't grow weary, persevere in prayer, and ask God for wisdom. Keep going. But in the midst of all that, you can't be divided in your desires. You have to be all in with Jesus, with your faith. So in verse 9, James goes on. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. 
we know in the, in the Gospels that the, both the rich and the poor followed Jesus. Wherever Jesus went, there were both were present. That same thing carried over into the early church. There were both rich and poor among the groups there. Uh, within any, within, and it'd be similar even today. In, some, in churches, you're going to find people who are struggling and some people who are very well-to-do. <clears throat> in these verses, James is talking exclusively to the poor. Because when he talks about the rich, he says they. When he has references to being poor, he says you. So the passage here is that he's talking about is about rich people. He's talking about, but he also talks and then it says that you have, um, that, that if you are in humble circumstances, that you should um, recognize that you have a high position. Which is kind of, again, counterintuitive. But what he's saying is there are in, eternal implications. Yes, things might be difficult now, but don't be envious of the rich and wealthy because your reward is coming. This is not, your life today is not the last chapter. There's another chapter that's coming in which it will look, things will look very different. James acknowledges the fact that we, we, that we have challenges in life. Life isn't fair, but God will help you. Don't give up hope. Then James goes on. <clears throat> In the last section we're going to look at here this morning. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. <clears throat> For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. <clears throat> For the past one and a half years, um, COVID-related, all of us, all of us, I have no doubt, have asked at one time or another, when is this going to end? Now, not all of life's challenges are this way. Some, life, some challenges in life, we have very clear sense. Like uh, I know with, with um, Ron and Carrie, Ron had the heart surgery. He knew that after the surgery, there's a three-month window I just I need to lay low. I, I can't work. I rehab. You know those things. That, but after that point in time, that there would be a chance to return to normal. So he had a, he had kind of this this uh, an anticipated time frame. You know that would things would be like. James is talking about those circumstances in life when we don't know when or if things will get better. Ever find yourself in a situation like that? Maybe you're in one now. When is this going to change? When is this going to get better? So James talks about things like a crown of life. Now we need to remember that, again, our ultimate destination is heaven. This isn't it. This isn't the culmination of life. This life may not go the way we want it to go, but this life isn't the end. And James is wanting them to keep that in mind. And then he goes a little further and he says, no one should say God is tempting me. Now, we see this idea in Greek literature. You know, the gods are all, you know, you know, doing things to the humans. We actually see this in the Old Testament as well. 
where God, the actual word that God is accused of tempting someone, and that's not a good thing. That's not the way we're supposed to be looking at it. But this, the idea here that is that when something bad happens, the idea is that God is upset with me and punishing me. Or worse, that God's, for no reason at all, is just messing with me. And James would have none of that. And he said, listen, some of you are struggling because of your own sinful nature. Some of you have made some really bad choices in your life. And you're, you're dealing with the consequences. So don't blame God for your problems. But even if not, even if not, even if you're not responsible for your present circumstances, don't blame God. God only does good. God has only the best in mind for you. There will be challenges in life, but when they come, don't blame God. He only has the best of intentions for you. So, within this passage, four takeaways, four things I think that will be helpful for us as we go into this week. One is this idea of live committed. Adversity is a reality every Christ follower will face. Life is hard, And adversity is inevitable. However, when it comes, choose joy over complaint. It doesn't do any good to whine, does it? It doesn't do any good to feel sorry for ourselves. I understand the seasons. I understand the moments. But ultimately, we've got to get to the point where we're able to say, you know what? This isn't going to define me. We don't want circumstances to define who we are and how we're going to respond to life. Our outlook determines our attitude, and our attitude determines our action. And we're determined to have a positive outlook because we know that stain, or I'm sorry, stain, strain brings gain. Now, as hokey as that sounds, it's true. So that way, we need, because of that, we need to seek God's guidance. We need to be all in. We need to be all in. A second takeaway for me is that we need to live prudent. Life isn't discovered in what you have, but who you know. I mean, let's just acknowledge the obvious. Life isn't fair, is it? It isn't. But we don't waste, we shouldn't waste time, we shouldn't waste emotional energy fretting over things we don't have. True riches for a Christian consist of faith and love that is expressed in generosity and pursuit of Jesus, not things. And just because it's easier to say that than actually live it out doesn't negate the truth of the statement. Third thing is live aware. Confront the temptation that could deceive you. Satan can and does tempt us. We know that's true. But often our greatest challenge is within. So ask God for wisdom. Ask God to help and give you guidance. Lastly, live grateful. Give thanks to God for His goodness. Gratitude, when we have a heart of gratitude, an attitude of gratitude, we're actually giving glory to God and acknowledge, because we're acknowledging what He's doing in our life. Gratitude opens up our lives to God in a greater way. Gratitude leads to joy and peace. It leads to a sense of contentment. And gratitude is a statement to others. I mean, people notice, don't they? <clears throat> our friend, we... Uh, we lost, uh, Betsy and I lost this past Thursday. Um, incredibly influential. Um, uh, just, I, I can't imagine what his memorial service is going to be like. Um, a place big enough 
in that Pittsburgh area, it was, I mean, for a decade or more, it was the, the church in the Pittsburgh area um, from an evangelical uh, side of things. But for, when he uh, was diagnosed, um, he, he, he did have cancer. So we knew that it wasn't good, but his passing Thursday was unexpected. There was still looking like there was uh, a long bit of time ahead of him. Um, but he kept, a, he kept, every week he sent out an email, every Friday afternoon, about of his journey with God through this season. Whew. To read what someone's writing, you know, as they know that, most of us, know, we all know we're going to die someday. But to know that your day is short, or your time is short, and you know what's coming, how do we process that? And how do we live life that way? To read his journal and his entries about how he's encountering God in really precious ways. He's not resentful. He's not bitter. He's not, he's not envious. He's not like, oh, I wish I'm... It's like, I've encountered guys. I didn't know God. I didn't know God was like this. There's no sense of resentment or, you know, there's nothing except that I have encountered God that it's just overwhelming. People notice how we live our lives. They notice how we go through adversity in difficult times. In short, if I had to summarize everything I've said here in five minutes, or not, everything I've said here in the last 35 minutes in a single statement, and don't say, why didn't you just do that in the beginning? <laughs> Here's my statement. Life can be very hard. Instead of asking, why is this happening to me, ask, what might God want to do through this hardship? Remember, God is always working on our behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for your word in James. It's not an easy word. He's talk, he talks about some things, matter-of-factly, that are really hard um, in ways, Father, that it's, again, I know it's easier to read it. I know it's easier to acknowledge it. But to really live it out can be really hard. So, Father, we ask for wisdom. And, Father, part of that wisdom is a perspective. It's having the mind of Christ. Um, and not just our own desires. So, Father, whatever circumstance uh, we might find ourselves in today, may we find you in an even more powerful way. Father, I pray for those here today who are might needing hope, who are just discouraged and they're down about circumstances. God, may they be encouraged. May they find hope in you here even in this moment. Father, for those who might find themselves in a situation where they have no idea what's next, and they just find themselves, Lord, as if they're just boxed in and they have no way out. And God, may they find you in the middle of this. Be confident knowing that regardless of what is around this corner, whatever is around this next bend, so to speak, you'll be with them through all of it. Father, for those of us who might need your provision, whether it's financial, physical, Lord, we pray that we would encounter you this day. Father, James is, is very clear in this first uh, section that uh, uh, we're, we're, you don't promise us an easy life. You don't promise that everything will work out perfectly, but you do promise to be with us through it. And so, Father, it's with that expectation, with that hope, that we, um, we come to you this day. So, Father, as we go into this week, we want to give ourselves to you. Lord, give us wisdom as we encounter the various circumstances and situations that might arise. Give us wisdom as we talk to people. Give us wisdom as we um, take on the various tasks uh, that are in front of us. So, Lord, that when we gather again, we can tell of your great mercy and of your great love for us and your provision.
And so, Father, with, with that hope and with that expectation, we give ourselves to you. And we thank you for all these things. And it's in Jesus' name. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.